don't truly know that the foundation that our faith is on is sturdy enough until it's tested. To the winds and the waves of life come crashing down, that's when we find that the foundation on Jesus Christ is sturdy enough to keep us. And I can look out in this place right now and I see faces. I see God's people. And I know your story. I know what you're going through. I know what you've been through. Today, my only desire is to point us that we have hope in the midst of our suffering. That what you're going through is not by chance, not by happenstance. It's not purposeless. That even in your greatest agony and pain, God has a plan for it. And that plan is for your good. So I want to pause and I just want us to pray. Because we asked for the Lord to interrupt us this morning and he did. So I want to pray to this God, pray to our God. Would you join me? Father, I thank you that we can lean our full weight on you. Nothing in our life is too heavy for you to carry. In fact, you are so big on yourself that you invite us to come and cast our cares on you. That's your flex. That all of your people can cast their cares on you at one time. And yet you don't buckle, but you say, keep on casting. Father, we understand this morning that you invite us to bring things to you to lighten our load, to lighten our lives. And would, would you free us from the tendency of holding tightly to keeping near the very things that you are calling us to give up? Not to rob us of joy, but to provide joy for us. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. Have your way with us. Use your word to minister to our hearts this morning. Strengthen the weary. Feed the hungry. Strengthen the brittle. Call back to you those that have wandered away. Let us see your goodness. Let us see your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to be in a different text, and I'll explain that after we read, but so that you don't have to stand so long. Let us go to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be in verses 6 through 11. When you get there, say amen. Give y'all a few more seconds. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. The Holy Scriptures of God read as follow Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. 
Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. You all may be seated. For those of you who have been following us since the top of the year, you know that we've been in a series called Being Built Together as we walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. But over the last few weeks and even the last few days, the Lord has really impressed on my heart, but also some other leaders, the reality of what we've been facing as a church and our need to renew our perspective and renew our minds about what God is doing, but also the actual reality of what the enemy is also attempting to do to us. The reality is that many or several of us have seen in our church and probably in our very own lives this heightened sense of spiritual battle. This heightened sense of unexplainable opposition that in many ways we can't necessarily put our figure to it, but we can recognize that it exists because there's unexplainable things that are taking place. And we know that God is not an author of confusion. In the midst of a season in the life of our church where grief after grief and loss after loss is taking place, prolonged suffering often has the tendency uh, to make us weary. But not only does it have the tendency to make us weary, sometimes it can make us vulnerable as well. Uh, one thing that I've realized is that what we're facing is not just singular to our church, but it is common to all churches. That this spiritual battle that's waging war is not isolated to Cornerstone, but there is, as one brother told me, he says, in my 30 plus years of Christian ministry, I've never seen the enemy's intensity and attack on his church like I've seen right now. In some ways, the pandemic has disrupted us. It's disoriented us. And in the common experiences that all of us face through it, anytime you go through suffering, you may go through a similar event but have completely different outcomes. The pandemic in a lot of ways has caused us as God's people to, in some ways, become prideful. And thinking that um, I don't really need the church as much as I thought I did. I don't need Christian community as much as I thought I did. That I, I have within myself and my friend group enough to help me be on the way. And what I've found is that that ideology, that, that lie to think that we don't need one another 
To think that the church is simply a place where I come and I get my spiritual nugget, but I don't need brothers and sisters in Christ to be in my life to remind me of the goodness of God when I'm down, but to call me away from the dangers of sin when they find themselves present in my life. Peter here is writing to a church that is scattered. A church that is wondering, where is my spiritual home? And not only that, a church that is being persecuted. Persecuted socially, physically, politically. And Peter writes this with the intention of reminding the church to have both an awareness and a sobriety that the life that we are living is not all that we see. That there's a spiritual reality beyond what we can sense with our senses. Some of us have grown up in denominations and theological circles who have divorced the supernaturalness of what our spirituality or what our faith talks about in Scripture with our actual faith. We've divorced the two. Anything supernatural we qualify or we, we categorize as mystical. But how do you read the Bible and not see over and over and over again that there's a spiritual reality that impacts and informs the physical realm that we, see, that we live in? Really today, I have only one thing that I want to leave with us that I pray that God would sturdy our feet in, and that's that there's grace to keep on standing. There is grace to keep on standing. Peter begins this text with an exhortation to us where he reminds us of what is, what, what is up of most importance to us as God's people. And he says this not as a suggestion to us, but as an imperative that we are first to recognize our need for God. We are first to recognize our need for God. And when I say that, that didn't move y'all, but if we are honest with ourselves, many of us don't recognize our need for God as much as we should. Many of us, we find ourselves going through day-to-day -day life with no sort of dependence upon God in the big or the small. And the evidence of our lack of dependence is our prayerlessness. It is the reality that we pray for things that we, think, that, we, we, that we think that we can't do in our own strength. But we don't also give to God the things that we could do in our own strength, but wouldn't accomplish the purposes that God would have for them to accomplish because we don't trust him with those things. Paul says, humble yourselves. That if you are going to stand firm, the first thing that you and I are going to have to do is we're going to have to surrender. He starts with what should we do to stand firm? Humble yourselves. What does that mean? Let God be God in your life. Let God be God in your life. Humility simply means to reduce one's rank, to lower oneself, to understand who we are and who we are not. 
That to know God, brothers and sisters, means to come into a knowledge of how God has revealed himself to us and to actually believe what God has shown us about himself. And that if we don't believe the revelation that God has given about himself, what we are doing is we are considering him to be a liar. Verse 6 comes off the heels of verse 5 where Peter says to the church or to these Christians, brother and sister, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you understand your God as one who opposes pride? I put that word oppose is not just to think unfavorably of. It means to be actively against. It means to rage war against. That your God will not compete compete with you on the throne of your life. You cannot call God Lord and and then not treat him as Lord. You cannot say, God, you have saved me, but now my life is my own and I'm going to live any old way that I desire to live. He says God is in opposition to that, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus takes this a little further in Luke 14, 11, where he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What is he saying? That grace is an opportunity for us to choose. It's an opportunity for you and I to make a decision. We can either be humble and sit down, or we can be humbled and be sat down. Peter says, humble yourselves, but then he says, what are we to humble ourselves to, or who should we do it to? And he says, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. What is he saying here? He's saying that we need to remain underneath the covering of God's mighty hand. It can be quite intimidating to think of this massive or mighty object hovering over us and us standing underneath that, because oftentimes we think of mightiness and strength that we are to submit under as something that's ultimately going to crush us. We think that that's the intent, but that's not what Peter is wanting us to understand about being under God's mighty hand. What Peter is wanting us to understand is that it's not like having an egg that you place underneath your feet, and then as you come stepping down with your force, the egg cracks, why? Because one, the egg was never intended or the purpose of the egg was never meant to withstand the pressure and weight of your body. But then two, the person who is stepping down never intended to preserve that egg in the first place. But it's more like the person who has a hammer in their hand and they take a nail. And they, as they crash down on that nail, that, that nail was intended to withstand the difficulty and the pressure and the force of that very hammer. And so when the hammer comes into contact with the nail, the nail submits. It yields to the pressure and forces that are coming on him. And it penetrates, accomplishing the very purpose that it was intended to accomplish. Why? Because the intent of the person wielding the hammer wasn't to destroy the nail. And the purpose for the nail was to yield to something greater to itself in order so it can accomplish the very purpose that it was created and made to accomplish. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Amen. 
pride will tell you that you have no need of God. Pride will convince you that you are all sufficient in and of yourself. People who dance with pride, they only trust in themselves, in their own opinions, in their own ideas. Inevitably, they are seeking attention for themselves. They are about their glory and not God's. That our pride is ultimately a signal to the rest of the world. It is a rejection of God entirely. God in his goodness will tell us that my intention for you is not to use the crushing weight of life to destroy you. But it's meant to use for something far greater. Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And what the scriptures want us to understand is that there are over a hundred plus uses of mentions of God's hand in the Bible. A hundred plus mentions of God's hand. And, and what Peter is drawing us to is what he wants us to be reminded of is that God doesn't just describe, his, uh, describe himself as having a hand, but he says a mighty hand. That the scriptures testify. I, I, I wish I had a couple witnesses here today who could testify to God's mighty hand at work in their life. But, but, but since I may not have too many of y'all, let me go to God's word. Moses testifies about the mighty hand of God that delivered him out of his oppression. Joshua testifies about the mighty hand of God who dried up the Jordan River so they could pass to the other side safely. The Psalms testify of God's mighty hand as being the means and provision for all good things to his people. Solomon testifies that it is God's mighty hand who holds the king's hearts in it and channels it as he so pleases. Luke will testify that it is God's mighty hand that brings about salvation of men. There's something about God's mighty hand that Peter wants us to be reminded about here, y'all. There's something about the mighty hand of God at work that reminds us of who's on our side. God says, you better ask about me. You better check my credentials. You better ask about my name in these streets. My hand, I don't even say my hands, I just say my hand is mighty. He says, yo, you better remain under my guidance. You better remain under my provision. You better remain under my care. You better remain under my protection. But he tells us why we should do that. He says, so that he may exalt you at your proper time. Hmm. I got to stop there. So that he may exalt you in your proper time. Exalt you. What does that mean? We need to be careful not to infuse our own interpretations into Scripture. Because what he's not talking about is the promises of blessings and wealth and health in this very life. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is that maybe in this life, your suffering will cease in some ways. But there's coming a day where all suffering will cease. You don't have to live with the hope of just constantly praying, God, take this from me. Take this from me. No, there will be a day where all of your pain and misery is no more. 
He says, humility is required so that God may exalt you, not in our time, but in his proper time. If you're going to stand firm and make it to the end, that's going to require patience and perseverance. And in a lot of ways, we are patient and persevering adverse. Some of us have gotten married and within two years of having difficulty already said, hey, let me hit the eject button. I want a divorce. Some of us are going through a season of job loss. And because God hasn't provided it in our timing, we're already ready to place our confidence and trust in something else entirely in thinking that the alleviation of my problem is what's going to be best for my soul. What if God has you exactly where he wants you to be in this difficult season in your life because he's trying to bring it into you so that he can can raise himself up in your life? So that, here's the thing, God will let it get bad in your life. He will let it get horrible. Also that when he fixes it, you can't take no credit for it. Hope tells us that though my grief weighs heavily upon me, yet I will trust in the Lord. Yet I will trust in the Lord that there's purpose. And if if there's purpose, then there's also a danger for us that grow impatient and make decisions out of convenience than out of obedience. Talked about the pandemic. And some of us got married in the pandemic to people we had no business getting married to. The pandemic allowed us to isolate so that we can do what we wanted to do. Some of us made decisions in the pandemic and got addicted on some things because we were lonely and thought that that alcohol or that weed or that girl or that guy could satisfy the deep longings in our soul to be with God and his people. Some of us have dabbled into other faiths, other forms of spirituality, because we thought that God was not a sufficient enough in and of himself to be what we needed for him to be in the moment that we found ourselves in. He says that God has not overlooked you and he has not forgotten about you. Well, you, do you trust him, though? Do you trust his intentions for you? Peter says, I'm not going to leave it up to you, though. Let me tell you about God's intentions. Let's keep going. Casting, he says, how should we do it? How should we stand firm? Casting all our cares on him because he cares about you. He cares about you. He cares about us. I don't know about y'all, but, 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 but life can get so messy and heavy that I don't need a weak God. I don't need a God who can just handle some of me. I don't need a God who says, hey, 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 you've been talking too much. That's enough. Come back tomorrow. I need a God who invites me to say, no, cast not some of your cares, but cast all of your cares. I need a God who doesn't just say, cast only new problems, 
but tells me to keep on casting that same thing, that same situation, that same thing you're going through. Keep casting it on me. For my arms are not too weak. My legs are not too feeble. My back is not too old. My hands won't, they won't fumble your requests. Cast them to me. You and I would never cast cares on somebody that we don't think cares about us. In the 1992 Barcelona Olympic Games, one thing that stood out to the whole world was the reality that this one racer named Derek Redmond from Britain, who started the race running strong, found himself turning the corner of the first hundred and where it seemed as though it was a tight and close race, all of a sudden you see this runner pull a hamstring. And the footage and the video, they're saying, what, what, what happened? Oh, no, everybody's in, in, in pandemonium. And you see people coming to him, coming, running over, saying, how can we help you? And the resolve of this man says, no, I may be injured, but I'm going to finish the race. So it shows him getting up, and he's by himself, and he's skipping, and he's skipping, and he's skipping. And then before long, he gets to the point where the pain is too unbearable for him to keep on going. And then out of nowhere, what you see is this man running from the crowd onto the field. And at one minute, the runner rejected help, but in this moment, the moment that he saw that the man who came running up to him was his father, you witnessed this sigh of relief. You see, it wasn't that he stopped crying. It wasn't that he wasn't still in agony. What was taking place right here is that he saw his father come alongside him and he felt comfortable to lean all his weight on him. Our God is not only willing or not only able to carry our weight, he's willing to do so. He desires to do so. And perhaps for you, where you find yourself right now is fearing that if you bring something to God, he will only reject you rather than accept you. What cares do you have on you right now? What keeps you up at night? What has you panicking and trying to fix and fix and fix and fix? And as you fix and try to fix all more, you keep messing up things and making it worse. Is it your children's salvation and well-being? Is it the marriage that seems dead and falling apart? Is it friendships that are strained or spiritual health in a season of dryness and feeling like God is distant from me? Or is it your mental health or your capacity to do? Or is it a physical ailment or, for, or infirmity? Or is it just the doubt that, God, what are you doing in my life? God says, bring those to me. Bring them to me. Don't take them to your friends. Don't take it to your mentor. Don't take it to your family. Bring those to me because I care. And I don't just care, but I'm, I'm the only one able to hold the weight of it and to fix it. Peter is ministering to us. He's ministering to the brokenhearted and saying that you have a God who is seeking after you who is searching for you and comes up close to you and just says, give it over to me. 
give it over to me. I'm going to read this quote because I, I know I'm running out of time, but I'm going to read this quote because it really just brought all this home. And it says, this commentator says, to the degree that you trust the king's promise to protect you, to that degree your burden will be lifted. If your trust is small, you will still feel burdened. But if your trust is great, your burden will be light. So the key to casting your burdens, your anxieties onto the king is to trust the word of the king, the word of promise, which, of course, includes trusting that he has the power to do what he says he will do, that he has the wisdom to be as strategic as he needs to be, that he has the will or the desire or the commitment to actually do what he says. Trust will involve all of those things. But trust is the key to letting your burden go and putting your burden on the king. When we let God be God in our life by surrendering ourselves to him in every way and in every area, it gives us the opportunity to experience the abundant life that Jesus promised you and I. Abundance is not always material wealth. Abundance a lot of times is just peace of mind. It's a lightness. It's a confidence to know that my God is with me, that my God cares about me, that the strength that God provides is ultimately removing the very things that weigh us down so that our knees can carry under the weight of the burden that he provides for us, which is light, of the yoke that he provides to us, which is easy. Do you see God that way? If you don't, I want to encourage you to rethink this one thing. How well have you been at carrying your own burdens? I can't stop there. We got to go. The second thing is we need to recognize our opposition. We need to recognize our opposition. He says, be sober minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him Firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers across the world. Two warnings he gives to us, church. Be sober-minded, be alert. Be sober-minded and be alert. Why does he have to tell you and I to be sober-minded? Because how often are we inebriated by the cares of this world and the concerns of this life and the things that this earth can promise us that God has told us to leave alone? It's no coincidence that he tells us to be sober before he announces the predator. Why does he do that? He tells us be sober and alert before he even tells us about our true enemy. Why? Because Christians, we can live and walk throughout life as if we're not in war. We can go every single day with no spiritual discernment, no spiritual alarm, uh, alertness, no spiritual sensitivities to the things of God, all because we've been filled by the things of the world. Your lack of appetite for God is just a sign that you are chewing on a different source of diet. That's it. You can't be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and not love or desire the things of God. 
But you can be convinced that there's something better out there that's more nutritional than God himself. You can think that instead of the word of God nourishing my soul, I'm going to go to social media. Instead of the word of God and the people of God and praying with the people of God, I'm going to spend my time at the club. You can distract yourself with whatever you want, but it's hindering you and not helping you. Peter says, no, 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 sober up, church. Sober up, church. What I want you to understand, church, is that, no, 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 too many of y'all are asleep. And you're asleep at the wheel. And what you don't realize is that when you fall asleep driving, there's only one course and one outcome that's going to take place. You're going to end up crashing. He's saying, no, 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 no. Be sober, but be alert. What does that mean? That means that there is no moment in time where you are not on the enemy's radar. I don't know where some of y'all come theologically. I know where I've come from, and I came out of, uh, in many ways, I come out of a theological, a theological perspective that would reduce or eliminate the reality of any type of spiritual enemy at all and would convince us to just simply believe that all we need is this Bible, but we don't actually believe everything in the Bible. That there are churches that talk about uh, these markers of health, but they leave out the Holy Spirit of God. Peter is saying, no, I, church, I need you to understand you're in war. I need you to understand that you need to be alert. And alert is not just saying, oh, yeah, Satan, looking for Satan under every single rock. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, Ken, are you walking so closely with God? Are you spending so much time in praying in the spirit of God? That when things come into your life, you don't attribute it to a person, but you attribute it to the true enemy of your soul. The text describes our enemy in three ways. He says he's, he's active in three ways. He's prowling, he's roaring, and he's looking. He's prowling, he's roaring, and he's looking. Prowling, I just said it. We have an enemy that studies us. The enemy is not omnipresent like God. He's not everywhere. But he does have demons that he can place on assignment to your life. If you think that because of your theological education, because of your seminary degree, because of how long you've been walking with Jesus, that you are not capable of finding yourself in a position where the enemy can pounce on you. Brother and sister, you're deceived. How many leaders, how many people have fallen from grace? And the only thing that they can point to is, man, I became prideful. I had a confidence in my flesh, in my ability, in the ways that God had used me thus far to think that I was immune of being destroyed. Roaring. Notice the text says he's like a lion, like a roaring lion, but not a but he isn't a lion. He's like a lion. Meaning that he can imitate a lion, but he doesn't possess the power of a lion. If you study lions, you realize that lions only roar at nighttime. 
I didn't say growl, I said they roar. Meaning that when lions are roaring, it's a sign and signal of one of two things. They sense encroaching threats on their territory. Or they are preparing to attack. Church, the amount of grief and loss that we've experienced in this church. Though we have the example of Job, there's no way to definitively say that this is something that God gave the enemy specific assignment to do in this body. But we can have that as a reference point of possibility. But one thing that we do know about the sovereignty of God is that only two outcomes can happen. Either one, God sent it, or two, God allowed it. Everything has to be sifted through the hand of God's sovereignty. And so when we look at loss after loss after loss and the impact that it has on us, when we look at struggling marriage after struggling marriage and uh, 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 difficulty in relationships and disunity and all these, these different things, What we need to recognize is that the enemy is roaring. Why is he roaring? Because if you don't understand this neighborhood, you don't understand what's present in this community, if you don't understand what God is doing in and through this church in the proclamation of the gospel, then you will misinterpret the only possibility of loss as meaning uh, God is putting us through suffering and not the enemy is trying to use those things to scare us and weaken us and intimidate us from what God is calling us to do. The roaring is meant to intimidate you. It's meant to scare you. It's meant to let you know, hold up, wait a minute. This is my territory. I own these streets. And what God is saying to us is that no, 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 no. It is the church of Jesus Christ who has been called to advance the kingdom of God and whatever territory you think you have, it's not permanent. You see, we can allow suffering to let us, to cause us to let our guard down. To let our guard down. Peter says, I don't want you to live as those who are unwilling to admit, not to fear the enemy, but to respect him enough to know what God is calling us to is not to be prideful and to act as though in all of our sermons and in our music to parade around and say, enemy, get under my feet. Enemy, I'm going to shoot you with this gospel missile. It, that's, that's not what the scriptures is teaching us. The Bible is teaching us to have a sobriety, though, in understanding that the enemy does have power. It's just limited. He can't do anything to you that God doesn't allow. And the way we respond to it is just praying against it, but standing firm in it and asking for God's grace to endure it. Peter, he continues to go on in him saying to us that, that you have a real enemy You have a real enemy. And the last thing I want to point out to that is that he says anyone, anyone, he doesn't say your pastors. He doesn't just say the deacons. He doesn't just say the ministry leaders. He says any one of y'all can get it. 
we're rolling out our den groups. And the reason why we're rolling out those den groups is not simply so we can have some, some, some pretty or flashy group structure in our church. We are rolling out den groups so that the people who belong to this family and those that would like to look in have a place to encounter and experience the fellowship of, with God and with other people. And to do it while on mission to invite other people into that very thing. So when we decide for ourselves, you know, I don't need no, I don't need no small group. I don't need no den group. I got friends. I'm good on my own. I'll just watch a sermon on that Wednesday night. That'll be enough. If you're not careful, what you'll find yourself doing is isolating yourself, which will ultimately make you the person who is vulnerable to being devoured. Lions don't attack packs. They attack weak and feeble individuals. The problem is that we don't know that we are the weak and feeble individual. And so we find ourselves having all the hell break out in our life because we've isolated ourselves and said, I don't need the protection of God's mighty hand. I'm good all by myself. He tells us this, resist them though. This is our, the method of our engagement. He says, here's your counterattack. Resist him. Resist him. Family, that means that you've been called to wage war. You've been called to wage war. There's going to be suffering that comes in your life that you can't just wait out. That you can't just distract yourself from. That if you take a passive approach to it, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. Peter tells us, resist. Fight back. Stop letting him destroy you. Stop letting him destroy your marriage. Stop letting him take control of your children. Stop letting him rule your emotions and your mental well-being. Resist him. How do you do that? Ephesians 6. I don't have time to get into it. Read it for yourself. Put on the whole armor of God. God doesn't intend for you to be defenseless. God doesn't leave you out there to fend for yourself. He says, I provided weapons for warfare. I want us, I want our prayers on Wednesday nights. I want our prayers in this church to, to go from merely asking God to bless us to asking God to wage war on our behalf. Some things in this church are only going to be removed by prayer and fasting. And I want to I wanna speak to this because God has raised up a remnant in this church, a remnant of women who have been praying and fasting on our behalf, asking God to do what we cannot do ourselves. And God has used that to now for us to experience the fruit of that right now. But I want to say, where are the men? No, no, I don't need, this ain't to shame y'all. Where are the men? 
God said, men lift up, hand, lift up holy hands in worship. Men, lead your families in prayer. Men, go on behalf before God. Where are the men? I'm grateful for my sisters. I'm grateful for them. But I'm burdened. I'm burdened for the lack of zeal and ownership and stepping up to the calling that God has placed on our lives to lead. And we're responding with apathy. If you are too, if you are too good to serve in kids ministry, then you will be too good to lead in any other way. I'm just going to be honest with y'all. Faithfulness is found in the small things. It's found in the small things. You don't know what God would use to bless your life and to equip you for something greater by merely sitting down with a kid and trying to tell him about Jesus Christ. No matter how uncomfortable that would be. Many of us preachers, we started with the children. We started when nobody saw us. Nobody even knew that we had a gift. We just said, God, use me. I'm available. If there's a need, I want to step into that need. And when I didn't have an answer to their questions, because you know kids be having them questions. It forced me to go and find an answer. Because if you can teach children, you can teach adults. If you can disciple children, you can disciple men and women. God is not wasting, that is, that is not a waste of time. That's the training ground. That's the training ground. I got to go. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. We saw standing firm, put on the whole armor of God. But know this, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not suffering in some unique or isolated way. We all are suffering. And when Peter tells us to stand firm, he has in mind the battle lines. He has in mind the reality that when one of us cower, when one of us give up, when one of us say, forget it, it gives the enemy place It gives the enemy access to the family. Don't think that your decisions and the way you live your life only impacts you. It impacts all of us. Stand firm, resist. But not only that, he moves into the last part by saying, recognize this, that God has a provision of grace for whatever we face. That God has a provision for grace in whatever you face. He says, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Here's our assurances. One, that the God of all grace is on our side. I didn't get enough amens to that. The God of all grace is on our side, which means that if God is on our side, who can be against us? He says that not only is God of all grace on our side, he says that God gives help 
sufficient for every occasion and emergency. He gives grace. Think about anything going on in your life and automatically speak to that. Say, there's grace for that. There's grace for that. Let me ask God, God, there's grace for me to get over that. God, there's grace for me to get through that. God, there's grace for me to trust you in that. All I got to do is ask. There's grace for every occasion and every emergency. But not only that, he says, but you've been called to his eternal glory in Christ. What does that mean? That one day we will experience the fruit of our call and we will be with him in glory. Suffering's temporal. Paul says, these momentary light afflictions. Ain't none of us been through what Paul been through. He says, momentary light. Ain't nothing light about being beaten almost to the point of death. Ain't long, nothing light about being bitten by a poisonous viper. Ain't nothing like being abandoned by the people that you thought was on your team. Ain't nothing like about being imprisoned for the gospel that you have been preaching in order to save people, but man's wrath has come against you. Ain't nothing like about none of those things. But Paul says, no, I have eternity in mind. And because my hope is not in this life, but in the life that will come, I can face every single thing knowing that they are momentary, they are light. Not only that, he says that God will use what we go through in order to make us into the people he has called us to be. He will restore through suffering. He will establish, strengthen, support you through your suffering. Meaning that God's purpose for suffering is to make you to look more like himself. You don't know what strength is until you get to the point where you're too weak to carry on and God holds you up and he teaches you and he gives you wisdom of how to navigate that. You don't know what it means to be established into the winds and waves. We just sung that song until those things come crashing on upon you. And when you think about what it was like to lose your very mom or your father or your child, God has brought you through that so you can now in turn be a comfort for somebody else. You don't know what it's like to want to take your life. Because the pain of all that's going on is just too much to bear. And for God to show up and to intervene and provide you with the support you need to take another day, to take another step. He says, I'm using all of these things for a purpose, for a purpose. And then he, with an exclamation point, reminds us of who actually has dominion, who has the victory. God does. God does. To him be dominion, not just for a time, but forever. Forever. So you and I, as we read, as we are confronted with the reality that we are a people saved by grace through faith. But we are a people to live out and to walk in the authority that God has given us 
so that when we come against the opposition of our enemy, we can stand firm with full confidence that our God has not only promised his presence, but he's promised weapons to protect and to take back what the enemy seeks to take from us. We can look to Jesus and see the example of this very thing. It was our Lord who when was led into the wilderness to be tempted by this accuser, faced the onslaught of the enemy's attempts, the promises of all the world had to offer, the promise that he could provide things for him that God couldn't, the, all of the waging of war against our Lord. And yet Jesus stood firm. He responded, not with his opinion, but with the words of God. This same Jesus we find in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter writes from a vantage point of being a person who, when Jesus was warring in prayer, he was found to be asleep next to a tree. He knows what unfaithfulness feels like. He knows what giving up and giving in in the time in which we should be prayerful, but we'd rather go to sleep. This same Jesus, though, extends grace to this Peter by going back and praying, not just for himself, but praying for God's people. And it's on his way to that very cross where the Bible says he was obedient to God to the point of death. That he hangs there. Praying. Knowing that his children would be like sheep sent out to slaughter. But yet he accomplishes the thing that you and I could never accomplish. He breathes his last words and three days later raises up from the grave in power, in victory, in might. Seated at the right hand of the father. Sends his spirit down to you and I. And says, I've given you all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Go make disciples. I'm convinced that the reason why we don't have a zeal to tell people, others about Jesus, is that we've, just, we've forgotten the authority and the power that Jesus has given his people to walk in. To walk in. God put it on my heart this week that we as a church need to consecrate ourselves. Consecrate simply means to devote ourselves or set ourselves apart for divine use, for worship and service of God. That our greatest problem isn't in our programming. Our greatest problem is not in trying to motivate people to do stuff. Our greatest problem is our hearts. Our greatest problem is that we don't love God as much as we think we do. We love other things more than we love God. That's not to shame us. That's just to remind us that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That the same God that liberated you and saved you is the God who will keep liberating and saving you if you'll bring your stuff to him. If you'll just confess it. Just acknowledge it. 
You just give it up. You just stop pretending. If you'll stop hiding, you'll stop distracting yourself. God says, bring those to me because I want to replace it with something better. I don't believe anyone in here who, who knows the Lord wants to be associated with the thing that, that repels God, which is lukewarmness. But I do believe that the enemy has, 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 has deceived us and has led us in some ways to pollute our souls, to weigh us down, and that ultimately keeps us from being unashamed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What could God do in and through this church and the people in here if we just took seriously coming forth, denouncing the things that we've given ourselves to that are not of God, repenting of the ways that we have, that we have half-heartedly walked with God, and then just to say, God, use me. Lord, I surrender all. All to thee. I surrender all, God. And by faith, we walk out here with the confidence that God can and is able to actually heal us.